Perfect. So, welcome. Uh, my name is William Yateman. I'm a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. I'm also an associate editor for the Cato Supreme Court Review. So our next panel is on constitutional structure. Uh, this is a very fast-moving area of law before the Supreme Court, and I'm looking forward to what's coming up. I'll introduce each speaker in turn. We'll go alphabetically. So I'll start with Professor Josh Blackman of the South Texas College of Law. Um, personally speaking, I think that blogging is among the highest forms of communication. Um, in my humble opinion, Josh is the nation's best constitutional blogger out there on the World Wide Web. I, I disagree. I, I mean, I, I recommend everyone here and watching online to please check out his posts at the Volokh Conspiracy. Um, today, Josh will be presenting on his article titled Unreviewable, the final installment of the epic Obamacare trilogy. I should add here very briefly, this is Josh's fourth contribution to the Cato Supreme Court review that ties him for second place all time. Who's first? Oh, uh, it's a two-way tie between Jonathan Adler and I forget the other scholar. It's okay. I shall take this off for a minute. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with much longer hair than my last visit. Um, Obamacare is sort of like the movie Groundhog Day for me. It's the same script that keeps repeating over and over again. This is at least my fourth time at this podium talking about Obamacare. In 2013, I was here talking about my first book, Unprecedented, The Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare. In 2016, my second book, Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty, and Executive Power. I'm here today. And next year, Ilya will be bothered with another book, uh, book form for my next book, which we call Undefeated, <laughs> the trilogy for Obamacare. But you get a preview of that article today. Um, for whatever reason, my young career has been defined by Obamacare. When I started blogging in 2009, this new law was coming around called the ACA, and there was this individual mandate. And I was very much involved in tracking the arguments about why Congress could not make people purchase health insurance. I was by chance present at a meeting at the Mayflower Hotel where the arguments to stop Obamacare were first hatched. Randy Barnett and Todd Gaziano and others were just sitting there milling about trying to change the constitutional world. And over the past decade, I've written about Obamacare. I've followed it. I've written amicus briefs about it for Cato and King v. Burwell and in the Hobby Lobby case and Little Sisters of the Poor. And during that time, Obamacare has had three existential challenges. It's defeated all three. The first was NFIB versus Sibelius in 2012 where the Supreme Court saved the ACA's individual mandate as an exercise of the taking power. The second case with King v. Burwell, the court held that the ACA, which subsidizes health care exchanges established by the state, also subsidizes the federal exchange. And this past term, we have California against Texas. This case held that Obamacare was safe. The latest challenge to the ACA was unreviewable, hence the title of my article. <clears throat> California versus Texas began when President Trump signed the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. This law did not repeal Obamacare's individual mandate. Rather, it reduced the penalty to zero dollars 
and zero cents. Arguably, this revision toppled the NFIB saving construction. Soon, a cohort of conservative attorneys general, as well as two private plaintiffs, filed suit. The plaintiffs argued that the ACA, without the penalty, could no longer be saved as an exercise of the taxing power. And they argued the unconstitutional mandate could not be severed from the remainder of the law. This was really where the ballgame was, right? If the mandate was stopped by itself, you know, victory for Cato, but not much for anyone else. They want to go big or go home. Well, they went home, as it turned out. The arguments were familiar, but Texas felt different. NFIB versus Sibelius united the conservative legal movement, of which I think we have a few card-carrying members here, and the Republican political apparatus, who are not here at the moment. This confluence moved novel arguments about the unconstitutionality of the mandate from off the wall to on the wall, to use Jack Balkin's phrasing. In NFIB, 26 states joined the challenge against the federal government, more than half the states in the union. And these combined forces came within a single vote, just one vote, right, Ilya? Just one vote, that's all it took, <clears throat> of killing the most important social legislation in generations. Four years later, the support for King v. Burrell was still strong. That was John Adler, who apparently is beating me on the Kansas Supreme Court review. Got to work harder. The conservative legal movement largely backed the challenge, which was grounded in a conventional reading of the ACA. But in 2017, the politics were different. The ACA had cracked the 50% mark for popularity. Indeed, the surge in popularity was triggered by Congress's failed efforts to repeal the law. Now that people were relying on it, like, wait a minute, I don't want this thing to go away. This is good for me. Millions of Americans now came to depend on the Affordable Care Act. As a result, many red states that joined NFIB did not support Texas's case. There was a shift. Only 18 states joined this challenge. Moreover, there was not much support for it. The Wall Street Journal, usually a good litmus test where conservatives are, hated the case. Speaking of John Adler, John Adler and Michael Cannon of the Cato Institute were the architects of the King v. Burwell case. They thought this case was ridiculous, and they were quite critical of me and others for the work that we did on this case. We're cool, though. We're all, we're all friends. For some time, I was the only prominent dissenting voice, or usually am. Uh, Randy Barnett eventually came around, but uh, we were few in number. But for me, at least, and I think for Cato, this challenge was consistent with longstanding views about NFIB. And I know this case better than just about anyone else, so I can say on some ground that this is something that I've believed in a long time. So first, I long ago concluded that the private plaintiffs in NFIB had sang to challenge the ACA even with a $0 penalty. Remember, when NFIB was decided, the penalty had not, not yet been assessed. There was simply a mandate that said, buy insurance before 2014. 
the basis for the injury where they were planning to buy insurance in the future. It was not based on the penalty. And for nearly a decade, I had debated across the country this one point. The injury in NFIB was based on the mandate and not the penalty. No one cared because it was basically a moot point. But this was very important to me because to prove that there was a mandate, to prove there was an injury. See, I didn't care about the standing element. I cared about the injury element, that you were being forced to buy insurance. The second point that I've long held is that the individual mandate imposed an unconstitutional command to purchase insurance without regard to the penalty. Again, the injury in NFIB was based on the mandate and not the penalty. And only through the Chief Justice's saving construction could the ACB read as a choice between buying insurance and paying a tax. This choice argument, buy insurance or pay a tax, right, only existed in the narrow confines of the Obamacare saving construction. But once the penalty was reduced to zero dollars, the saving construction failed. That choice vanished. We were left with an unconstitutional command to buy insurance. And these were the views that Cato advanced in the amicus brief they worked on with Ilya and a few other people uh, at the center. Alas, the Supreme Court disagreed with us. Wasn't even close. Seven, seven, not four, seven. Seven members of the court found the plaintiffs lacked standing. Justice Breyer, no swan song, Adam, right? Justice Breyer wrote the majority opinion, joined by the Chief Justice. Justice, oh, it kills me. Clarence, what are you doing, Clarence? Clarence Thomas joined the majority. Justice Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Justice Samuel Lito dissented with Gorsuch. We got two votes. We didn't even get two votes, right? The two dissenters found that the states had standing. The mandate was unconstitutional. And certain portions of the ACA should be enjoined. They were not clear which ones. But none of the justices, neither the majority nor the dissent, addressed what might be called standing through inseverability. This was a position advanced by the U.S. Solicitor General. Um, our brief was actually written before we saw their brief, but they were very much on the same page. They may borrow from us, we may borrow from them, but we were on the same page. Um, ultimately, the majority said we will not consider this argument because it was waived. The lawyer's most dreaded word is waiver. If any of you guys are law students here listening, waiver is the worst thing. Oh, we don't have to consider it. Let me tell you something, folks. It was not waived. I was sitting in the Fifth Circuit courtroom listening to them make the argument. My ears do not deceive me, Justice Breyer. But it apparently was not raised in the cross-petition for certiorari, and that's enough for a waiver. This is a manufacturer standard. The court did not want to touch it because the argument had more merit than was given to it. And the dissenters simply said, well, we don't worry about that. We'll do state standing. So in my brief time here, I'd like to explain how we thought standing through inseverability could work, right? Um, the basis of our theory was, was actually a Thomas opinion, which is why it kills me he didn't agree with us. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote a, an opinion called in Murphy involving uh, online sports betting. And Justice Thomas said we need to reconsider severability doctrine, right? 
we can't just be willy-nilly and strike down statutes in their entirety. That's, that's wrong, and I agree with that. Thomas explained, we should limit the provisions we invalidate to those that injure the plaintiff. And he draw this close fit between severability doctrine and standing doctrine, that you can only invalidate provisions of law that, in fact, injure the plaintiff. And if there's no injury, in fact, you can't invalidate it in severability doctrine. So I just think this is a circle, right? Standing and severability are linked, and severability and standing are linked. I thought it would go both ways. Uh, CT disagreed, right? But let's just indulge my, my fantasy for a few more minutes that I thought might actually work. So how would this operate? The individual mandate was a command to buy insurance. It inflicted an injury in fact. I will go to the grave arguing that point. There was an injury in fact. But the biggest hurdle was not injury in fact. It was redressability, right? That's one of the three elements of standing. You have injury, traceability, and redressability. Usually, we ask, is there some sort of injunction or some remedy that a court could order that would actually redress the plaintiff's injuries? If you're just dealing with a mandate, you got a problem. What are you going to order? The government can't stop doing something they're not doing, right? If they're not actually enforcing a mandate, they can't stop doing it, right? You can only be ordered to stop doing something you can actually do. And, and I, I can see this point. Right. In fact, this this was, I mean, a fairly obvious point. Justice Barrett, I think one of her first questions on the bench, asked about redressability. So this wasn't a surprise. But there was a way to address redressability sort of indirectly. And you did it through inseverability. Generally, when Congress enacts laws, they include severability provisions. They say, if whatever reason provision X is declared unconstitutional, please, courts, leave the rest of the law in place. Let as much of the law survive as possible. This makes sense, right? Congress doesn't want its handiwork to be cut short. Right? Severability clauses are fairly common. Often courts ignore them. For example, in, in uh, the Texas abortion case, the other one, Holman's Health, there was a provision in the law that said abortion clinics must have smoke detectors. Justice Breyer said, no, we can't have that. No severability, kill the entire law, right? God forbid, smoke detectors, that's an undue burden, whatever, right? So courts ignore these clauses all the time. But the ACA was different. It did not have a severability clause. It had, I think, an inseverability clause, inseverability clause, that if a certain portion of the law is declared unconstitutional, other clauses go with it, right? You cannot sever the mandate from health insurance regulations the guaranteed issue, and community rating. These are the laws that make insurers cover everyone regardless of their health. The ACA said that the mandate was essential, that's where it's used in the statute, essential to the operation of guaranteed issue and community rating. Essential, the word appears there twice in the statute, not in a committee report, not in a legislative history, in the statute. In 2012, the Obama administration argued that this provision functioned as an inseverability clause. I thought they were right back then. In fact, with respect to Cato, I thought the correct remedy was if the Obamacare mandate's unconstitutional, you just take out those two parts. I, you know, whatever. That was 10 years ago. Um, so what we argued was that if the mandate's unconstitutional, then those other provisions go with it. In this regard, the mandate and the guaranteed issue are this cohesive whole. They're like a block. 
Congress glued them together. And if those three provisions generate standing, those three provisions can be used for inseverability. Can you enjoin the guaranteed issue? Yeah, you can. It's a health insurance regulation. You can enjoin it. That's how you get your addressability. Injury in fact, traceability, redressability. If those three provisions are glommed together, standing's a piece of cake. We didn't think this was this radical, right? Congress very rarely tells us about inseverability. It's not very common, but they did so here. And we thought that was sufficient to generate standing. The court ran away from this argument. They did not want to touch it. They did not want to touch it at all. The, the dissenters like, ooh, we're not sure. It seems novel. And they didn't want to touch it either. Um, the upshot here, though, is that Obamacare still exists in this sort of zone of twilight, if I may, bar another constitutional phrase. The mandate's still unconstitutional. It's still there, right? No one, oh, no one, but a few people doubt that. But at some point, someone will raise the challenge in a defensive posture. Imagine a Quitam challenge, right? Or a False Claims Act challenge. Like, ah, oh, you committed healthcare fraud. Wait a minute, you can't come at me with Obamacare. It's unconstitutional. At that point, some judge somewhere will have to decide whether the entire statute's valid. And by the way, under Fifth Circuit precedent, it ain't valid, right? So, so if you bring this case in Texas, you're in a pretty good spot. But alas, the court did not want to decide this case. I have to go write my third book now. I think I'm out of time. Thank you all so much. And it is such a pleasure to be back here in Cato to speak to you all in person. I know you have people in Zoom land, but uh, it's, it's really, uh, after a year and a half, it's, it's a familiar joy to be in front of you all. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Josh. Uh, next, we've got Derek Mahler. Um, he's a professor at the Iowa College of Law. Now, I poured over Derek's CV in preparation for this introduction, and rest assured, he is incredibly accomplished. Um, he's clerked at the Eighth Circuit. He's excelled in private practice at a white shoe firm. But one thing leapt off the page of your CV. Um, in 2020, at the Yada Yada Law School, Derek gave a presentation on Seinfeld Law. I mean, I thought that was incredible. I think that's really neat. I want to learn more about it. Um, today, Derek is going to present. Doctrine about nothing. <laughs> Very indeed. The, uh, uh, Derek is going to present on his article, which is titled "Bronovich v. DNC: Election Litigation uh, Migrates from Federal Courts to the Political Process." Well, thank you. Yes, my YouTube lecture on evidence law, including all the attorney-client privilege from Jackie Childs to prospective client Kramer, is available for your viewing if you're so interested. Uh, thank you to Cato and for the participants on this panel, for the, the great editing work on uh, the, the piece and for the journal. Uh, it's an invaluable resource every year, so I appreciate uh, being a part of it this time. Um, so Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee uh, was a decision issued this year. And... Um, you know, I, there's been a little bit of uh, election litigation that's happened around the country in the last couple of years, right? Um, uh, in terms of the major political parties, the RNC and the DNC and their Senate congressional arms, they spent or they disclosed that they spent about $7.5 million back in 2012 on uh, law or litigation, attorney's fees and the like. Uh, that total was something north of $66 million in 2020. Um, on a wide variety of fronts, from uh, pandemic-related measures to challenges to the certification of the results of the election. Um, but one trend has been holding true in the last two decades, and that is if you're challenging an election law and it gets up before the United States Supreme Court, you're probably going to lose. 
um, and this case was no exception. Um, so Brnovich versus DNC began in 2016 as the Democratic National Committee challenged two laws out of the state of Arizona. One was a very old standing law on out of precinct voting. That is, it prohibited voters from casting a vote outside of their home precinct. Uh, it would not count that ballot, even if you were a registered voter. The thought was, uh, you show up to the precinct, you vote in your precinct. Uh, the thought was, well, maybe we could count the vote. You know, maybe we don't know where you reside or you voted in the first congressional district where you're supposed to be in the second congressional district, but you're a registered voter. We can count your ballot for Senate, for president, for some statewide office. Some states have provisions like this, but Arizona did not. In fact, Arizona, going back to at least 1970, um, and likely since it, uh, the territory became a state in 1912, uh, had this rule on the books saying you can't uh, cast a ballot outside of your precinct and have it counted. The second was a new statute that had just been enacted in the state of Arizona that Arizona had been considering in some previous legislative sessions, which prohibited third-party ballot collection, or sometimes called ballot harvesting. That is to say, only members of your family, postal workers, county officials who are counting the ballot, caregivers, a limited set of individuals can collect your ballot once you've cast your vote. Um, the concerns arose about voter intimidation, Concerns arose there could be voter fraud from collecting blank ballots and completing them. Uh, there have been scattered instances and reports gathered about the kind of voter intimidation concerns about collecting these ballots. Um, and so the thought was in Arizona, which had considered some similar bills in 2011, 2013, uh, to enact the statute in 2016. Um, so these two provisions were challenged by the Democratic National Committee uh, in the state of Arizona. And they used as the mechanism to challenge it a provision of the Voting Rights Act called Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, a little bit of the, the, the history about how we got to this stage was that for a long time, from 1965 onward, a number of states were covered under a provision in the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. I'm sure if I looked into the Cato journals, you could see about the 2013 litigation that arose in a case called Shelby County versus Holder, where the Supreme Court said there were a handful of states that because of their past history of racial discrimination, required to go get pre-clearance from the Department of Justice, essentially pre-approval of their, of their election laws before they could take effect to ensure that they didn't diminish the opportunity of racial minorities to participate in the political process. Um, in 2013, the Supreme Court in Shelby County said, Congress hasn't updated this formula for covering states since 1975. Uh, if that's the case, we think that the formula is out of date. Congress needs to update it. Congress this month is considering a bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, that would update that statute based on contemporary conditions. But what that meant is states, including Arizona, uh, that had previously been covered, can enact statutes just like the rest of the country. It passes a statute, it gets enacted, it has to be challenged in court. And litigants were looking for alternative avenues to challenge such statutes, and one was to look at the text of a statute in the Voting Rights Act called Section 2. And I'll read it very briefly. A violation of this section is, is established if based on the totality of the circumstances, it is shown that the political processes leading to nomination or election in the state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation by members of a class of citizens provided by this subsection in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. Um, this provision had been used principally since Congress amended it in the 80s to deal with redistricting issues. It had not been used for what plaintiffs would call vote denial cases. I can't vote in this precinct. I can't vote because someone can't collect my ballot. 
or a neutral time, place, manner restriction, right? Here are the rules for how precincts operate. Here are the rules for collecting ballots. So as a result, there arose after 2013 some additional inquiry into could this section be used to challenge election laws? It hasn't really been used to challenge these kinds of election laws, but maybe we can develop some mechanisms to do so. Arizona was one of the earlier efforts at this uh, made here. The Democratic National Committee thought this would be a good effort to potentially collect some additional votes for Hillary Clinton in 2016. The thought was statewide election, out of precinct voter ban could benefit the Democratic candidate. So the challenge was brought principally on partisan grounds, but under the Voting Rights Act on the thought that it would, uh, uh, that these statutes affected racial minorities' opportunity to participate in the political process. Um, and many commentators at the time recognized that this case might be something of an overreach in terms of the statute and in terms of its application. Um, the plaintiffs lost at the trial court and they lost at the Ninth Circuit. Um, but then they won at the Ninth Circuit on Bonk. And the Ninth Circuit found that both statutes ran afoul of the Voting Rights Act and in fact, that, that Arizona had enacted its ballot harvesting law with racially discriminatory intent. Um, so that was a heavy finding from the Ninth Circuit that I think got the Supreme Court's attention when they granted cert in this case. So you have this statute, and again, it's not, it's a pretty open-ended statute, right? One of the most important provisions is try to, to identify what is equally open to members of the political process in that its members have less opportunity than members of the electorate to participate. And so in a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court, in opinion by Justice Samuel Alito, emphasized looking at this statute through sort of standard statutory interpretation that we're looking at what's equally open, how do we identify equally open, in that there's less opportunity, and we can measure opportunity by looking at the totality of the circumstances. Now, when a court is asked to interpret a statute that uses the phrase totality of the circumstances, <laughs> it's a challenge, right? The court offers it. We're going to offer five guideposts, but of course, totality of the circumstances is limitless. It means anything relevant to examining, less opportunity to part participate in the political process. And it offered some touchstones to think about that. Um, now, Justice Kagan in dissent and, and some critics of Brnovich have not been very happy with this opinion to say it's sort of uh, text-free. It is really not tethered to the text of the statute at all. But in a way, when you're dealing with a phrase like totality of the circumstances, I think the court is doing the best job it could. It looks, it says, here are some guideposts for lower courts. The size of the burden imposed by the voting rule, the degree to which the voting rule departs from practices in 1982 when the statute was amended, the size of disparities the, uh, that impact members of, of different racial or ethnic groups, the opportunities provided by a state's entire system of voting, and the strength of the state's voting interest. And two provisions in particular stand out. The first is that when the court introduces this concept to say, what does it mean to have less opportunity to political, participate in the political process? The court tethers it to an understanding of what Congress was doing in 1982 when it enacted the statute. Say that was essentially the baseline that courts should be considering. So in, in, a, in a couple of respects, this might be a pretty remarkable proposition. One is in 1982, almost no state had anything like the absentee or early in-person voting systems like we have today. And so it's a strong suggestion, and indeed it was the case in this, in this uh, opinion, to say that those kinds of provisions are likely going to survive scrutiny. They do not deviate very far uh, from what happens in this particular case. But the second is to think about other statutes that might be challenged in the future, such as voter identification laws, which were not a very popular mechanism in the United States in 1982 and might face additional forms of scrutiny and attack in the future. 
But the second is a series of moves that the court makes that I think are going to become increasingly important for the lower courts as they move forward, which is to describe what the court says are the usual burdens of voting. That is, the court says we look at what the usual burdens of voting are. Voting is not a costless thing. You have to get up and do something. You have to fill in a ballot. You have to fill in a request. And the court is recognizing that there are some burdens that simply we have to overcome as members who participate in a democratic society. I think to the extent that the court looks at both the usual, usual methods of voting, usual burdens of voting, coupled with how it describes the fact how this opportunity fits into the larger statutory scheme, it's going to make it a lot more challenging for plaintiffs to challenge these statutes under the Voting Rights Act. Because as the court points out in, uh, repeatedly in the opinion, uh, voting in Arizona is easy, all things considered. There's extensive absentee voting. There's extensive in-person voting. There are ample opportunities to participate in the political process. And so seizing on a couple of isolated provisions of the code are not going to be enough to trigger concerns under the Voting Rights Act. And so that was this challenge. Okay, these challenges under the Voting Rights Act are pretty novel. They, they really arose in the last eight years. So it's not clear how much this changes this, the, the litigation landscape compared to the baseline a handful of years ago. Well, that was a time where the Voting Rights Act also had Section 5. But it's worth briefly, as I conclude, sort of reflecting on some recent challenges that all plaintiffs have had raising claims before the Supreme Court. You can go back to Bush versus Gore and say, Gore, as the plaintiff in Florida, lost that case before the United States Supreme Court. But there are other cases. In 2006, it issued a decision in Purcell versus Gonzalez saying, Ninth Circuit, you shouldn't be changing Arizona's proof of citizenship requirements so cl close in time to the election. Plaintiffs lose. In 2020, Democrats challenged the, 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 the deadlines for voting in Wisconsin during the pandemic. Supreme Court in one of its infamous shadow docket decisions said, lower court, you were wrong in extending the deadline at this point in time. 2008, it issued a decision in Crawford saying plaintiffs who challenged Indiana's voter identification law lost. Uh, in 2015, uh, Republicans challenged Arizona's independent state or independent redistricting commission. Plaintiffs lost. In 2016, plaintiffs challenged Texas's redistricting system about whether or not non-citizens should be included in, redist in, in redistricting decisions in Evanwell versus Abbott, they lost. In 2019, plaintiffs challenged partisan gerrymandering decisions made in the state of North Carolina, Rucho versus Common Cause, they lost. There's more to talk about. And there's a couple places where plaintiffs win. But, but the sort of overall thrust of the Supreme Court in the last 20 years has emphatically been that the federal courts should be less involved in election litigation. And these decisions should more and more revert to the political process. The irony, of course, is that the amount of election litigation is at the highest it's ever been in the United States. And the amount of money spent on election litigation is at the highest it's ever been in the United States, which suggests that there is this sort of uh, rock and hard place of the Supreme Court less interested in hearing these cases than ever before, and plaintiffs more and more seeking out federal judicial intervention than ever before. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. That was, that was great. I'll, I'll take this off. Um, it is a personal pleasure to introduce our final speaker, Aaron Nielsen, he is a professor at the J. Reuben Clark Law School at BYU. Um, I've admired this gentleman for years and I've learned a great deal from him. Um, very few lawyers <clears throat> can be considered the dean of the administrative law bar 
Aaron is one of these few. Um, the, the, to wit, the proof is in the pudding of all the brilliant legal minds out there. The Supreme Court appointed Aaron to argue on behalf of the FHFA in Collins v. Yellen, a major separation of powers case decided last term. So he brings a personal perspective to Collins v. Yellen. Um, I very much look forward to hearing his, about his article, which is titled, Three Views of the Administrative State, Lessons from Colin v. Collins v. Yellen. Wow, I've, I've never been called the dean of anything, so I, I'll take that. Thank you. Um, so we're going to do Collins v. Yellen, um, and it is a, let's go to the next slide, make sure, make sure this works. Here it goes. Um, as you'll see in my, my article, uh, there's actually three cases going on here. I'm not going to do all three. I'm going to focus on the second one, which is the, uh, the constitutional case. But the first one is worth $120 billion. Um, so pay attention to that one as well. Um, and, but, but life is short. So we're going to focus on the second one. And I'm going to start with a little bit of um, background on the issue. And, and the issue is, what power does the president have to fire heads of federal agencies? This matters a lot for the so-called independent agencies, Federal Trade Commission, Federal Communications Commission. Um, and it's been one of the most litigated or most controversial constitutional question for the last two centuries. Um, so here it is. This is just the basic structure of how you can think about things. Uh, we have the executive agencies. And what makes it an executive agency? It's the president can fire the head. So if the president is unhappy with the secretary of state or the attorney general, um, the president can request the resignation. And if the person declines, the president can just fire and say, you're out the door. Um, so most of your departments of fall within that model. Um, we also then have the independent agencies. This is the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Reserve, the Federal Communications Commission. They often have commission in the name. Um, these are multi-member bodies. And if the president is unhappy with what they're doing, the president can't just fire them, say just you know, hit the road. Uh, instead, they have some independence. Um, then we have one, maybe two, maybe a few examples of multi-member executive agencies. Um, the American Battle Monuments Commission, I don't think most of us think about that when we think about federal agencies, which tells you how unusual that, that setup is. And then we have a few single-headed independent agencies, the CFPB, the FHFA, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which we'll talk about, Social Security, and the Office of Special Counsel. Okay, so here it is. Um, the Constitution says nothing explicit about the question of if the president is unhappy with the person heading one of the agencies, what happens? Instead, the only way the Constitution says that you get rid of somebody is impeachment. Um, so there's four options. One option is there is no presidential removal. The only way to get rid of an attorney general or something is impeachment. Um, for the last 200 plus years, nobody has really thought that. Um, you've had a few maybe early folks, but that, that seems pretty extreme and unlikely. The other option is whenever the president wants. This is based on the vesting clause. The executive power is vested in the president. And the take care clause, the president shall take care of the laws are faithfully executed. If the president can't fire somebody who's not doing a very good job from the president's perspective, is the executive power in the president? Is the, can the president take care of the laws are faithfully executed? Um, this is James Madison's view of how this is supposed to be resolved. Um, the other is like the appointments clause, but in reverse. Um, you can't um, confirm somebody without the Senate's approval. Well, how about you can't get rid of somebody without the Senate's approval? And the last option is 
necessary and proper clause. However, the, the Congress thinks best is the answer to this question. Um, and we've been fighting about it for more than 200 years. Um, a big case from 1926 um, is Myers v. United States. Here was a postmaster, and the question is, can the president fire a postmaster if the president doesn't think the postmaster is doing a good job? And here, in a decision written by Chief Justice Taft, former President Taft, um, one of the lengthiest decisions in the history of the Supreme Court, they say, yes, the president has a constitutional unilateral power to fire someone exercising executive power who isn't doing a very good job from the president's perspective. Um, fast forward nine years, 1935, Humphrey's executor. Uh, here you had a FTC commissioner. Um, President Roosevelt did not think that the FTC commissioner was doing a very good job. Um, relying on Myers, um, in fact, the Department of Justice told President Roosevelt this case could not be lost um, in light of Myers. Um, he fired um, the FTC commissioner, uh, who then dies and his executor sues for back pay. And the Supreme Court, in the unanimous decision, says, no, 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 no. There's a difference between a postmaster and an FTC commissioner. A postmaster, that's pure executive power. An FTC commissioner is quasi-judicial and quasi-legislative. Um, so you can't just fire the FTC. Um, then fast forward um, to the 1980s, Morrison v. Olson, a, a big important separation of powers case about the Office of um, Independent Counsel. Uh, there, there was an argument saying, well, an independent counsel, surely that it's executive power. So that falls on the Myers, not the Humphreys executor side of the line. And the Supreme Court, in a lopsided 7-1 decision, says, no, 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 no. It's equally true for something like the, um, an independent counsel. The president can't just fire an independent counsel. You can have these types of independent agencies. And that's where we were. Um, the, the Supreme Court seemingly had said the final word, which is you can have the independent agencies. The independent agencies are safe. That started to change in a case called Free Enterprise Fund, uh, the Public Accounting Oversight Board. Here, um, this agency was challenged in the D.C. Circuit, and the difference was it was an agency that was controlled by the SEC, which itself is independent from the president. Um, so you had two levels of removal. And then on the D.C. Circuit, then Judge Kavanaugh um, said, well, that's unconstitutional. Um, that's not just Humphrey's executor. That's Humphrey's executor squared, um, if you add another level of removal. Um, and most people thought that argument wasn't particularly compelling. Um, it goes to the Supreme Court, and to the surprise of many, a majority of the justices say, yep, we agree, that is unconstitutional. Uh, then, uh, now Judge uh, Naomi Rao, then Professor Naomi Rao said, well, wait a minute, the same logic that you just used to say that two levels are unconstitutional would apply to one level. If the president can't control um, two levels, the president can't control one level either, um, so independent agencies should be unconstitutional. Um, well, fast forward to Salah Law last year. Um, this was the CFPB. The CFPB is a single-headed agency, tremendously powerful single-headed agency, Lots of challenges to it, including the D.C. Circuit. Then Judge Brett Kavanaugh says, well, this is unconstitutional because, remember, we have multi-member um, agencies and single-headed agencies, and multi-headed agencies, that's FTC, okay, but a single-headed independent agency is unconstitutional, and that should fall. Again, surprising many professors, the Supreme Court took the case in a case called Salah Law and agreed with the Kavanaugh view and said the CFPB is unconstitutional um, because the president can't fire the head of the CFPB. Um, but in so doing, they said, well, what about the other single-headed independent agencies, the Office of Special Counsel, the Social Security Administration, and the FHFA? And it said, well, they might be different. We're not so sure. They might be different. They exercise, uh, they do not involve regulatory enforcement power remotely comparable 
um, to that exercise by the CFPB. Well, then we get um, uh, the FHFA, and that's where I'm going to come into the picture here. Um, so in 2008, following the housing collapse, um, Congress enacted um, a new agency, the FHFA, um, to regulate uh, essentially Fannie and Freddie, uh, as well as a few other um, federally chartered banks. Um, and the agency is set up uh, that it's headed by a single person who the Senate confirms, but the president can only remove for cause. Um, so it's an independent agency in that sense because the president can't fire at will. Um, and there's been tremendous amount of litigation about this particular agency because as soon as the agency came into existence, it put Fannie and Freddie into conservatorships. Um, and um, so now the federal government is essentially running Fannie and Freddie. And, and then in 2012, and the, and the United States, by the way, has loaned hundreds of billions of dollars to Fannie and Freddie. And in 2012, as part of this agreement, uh, they essentially, um, the government calls it um, the third amendment to the agreement. The plaintiffs call it a net worth sweep. But they essentially said all the profits that Fannie and Freddie generate go to the United States Treasury. Um, so the private shareholders of Fannie and Freddie, of course, are unhappy about that, and they would like $100 billion plus back. Um, that prompts a lot of litigation, including a constitutional challenge to the FHFA, saying that you can't have a single-headed agency that's independent from the president. Um, so the position of the plaintiffs um, in, in, in this case is, this is SALA law. Humphrey's executor should be overruled, um, and we should just get rid of independent agencies altogether. There's no reason to have them unconstitutional. The Trump administration agreed on the constitutional question. Um, they didn't agree that you should pay back 100 plus billion dollars to the plaintiffs, um, but they recognized that um, that under president, this, this they think that this is unconstitutional. Um, so what happens when the federal government does not defend an act of Congress is the Supreme Court appoints an amicus to defend the act of Congress. Uh, and that is where I became in. The first time in my life, I am an esquire. Um, but the Supreme Court appointed me to brief and argue in defense of the Federal Housing Finance Agency uh, after say the law had just lost. So I had to come up with some arguments that had not just been rejected in say the law. Um, so this is what we came up with. We came up, we and me being another professor, Chris Walker at Ohio State, um, and we came up with, I thought, three pretty darn good arguments. Our first argument we came up with is, hey, this Third Amendment that everyone's suing about, it was actually done by an acting official. Uh, we, there's been a lot of acting, so we can talk about that. They're in the news all the time. This was done by an acting official, and we made the argument the president can always just fire an acting official. They don't have tenure at all, so this entire qu question, is there's a false premise here. Um, second, uh, remember they said in SALA law that the CFPB exercises significant executive power. Well, we say... This, you just said it doesn't exercise significant executive power. The FHFA doesn't do so. Um, so thus, we think that there is a distinction there. And finally, we say uh, for cause is the weakest removal protection at all. It includes insubordination. So if the head of the agency doesn't do what the president wants, the president can fire. The Supreme Court rejects all three. Um, first, they agree with me um, that you can fire an acting director at will. Um, that is a change. The Fifth Circuit disagreed on that, but they say as a matter of text and history, uh, we're right, you can fire the acting director. But they say, but after that, there's been Senate-confirmed directors since who could have withdrawn um, from the Third Amendment. Thus, we're going to reach the constitutional merits. Um, second, this is the, the, the important stuff. Um, there is no significant executive power test. 
no matter how much authority an agency wields, whether it be a lot like the CFPB or a little like the FHFA, arguably, um, that's enough. You can still fire. The president can still fire. Conservatorship, we said that's not even executive power. Um, they said whether that's executive power or not, um, we think that it is. This is an ordinary conservatorship, so that still counts. Um, and we say, but this is not even like a private right. All they're doing is regulating other government entities. Um, so there's not like anybody coercive power. They're not like the CFPB saying you can't do your work. Um, instead, they're just saying like we're not going to uh, you know allow Fannie and Freddie, which are essentially government entities anyway. And they said that doesn't matter. Ordinary Americans, that, that that's not the test. The test is whether or not it would be it falls within the executive branch. Um, and then finally, they say that even if the president can fire the head for insubordination, so in other words, um, even if there isn't policy discretion outside of the president's, if it's not pure at will, that is unconstitutional as well. That, I think, is the most expansive holding on the Supreme Court on executive power since 1926, uh, maybe even more so, because a lot of um, Myers was dicta. This is a holding of the court. Um, and the remedy, though, they say you don't get $100, million, $100 billion back. Um, instead, we're just going to say that it's void, um, the, the for-cause removal protection, unless you can show that it actually mattered in the real world, which is now being remanded, Justices Kagan and Thomas say. And by the way, you're probably not going to be able to make that showing. Um, so where we are, here is the future. Um, executive agencies, we're still going to have those. Multi-member, I guess we'll have the American Battle Monuments Commission. Um, you know, if, if I have any commissioners out there, I apologize. I'm sure it's a very, very important agency. Um, but what do we do about these independent, single-headed agencies? Well, as soon as the Supreme Court decided this, uh, President Biden fired the head of the FHFA. Several weeks later, he fired the head of the Social Security Administration. Special counsel, we'll see that's going to be future litigation, but it's at risk. The bigger question is, what does this mean for the FTC? How can you possibly reconcile, say, the law and Collins uh, with Humphrey's executor? We will see. Um, that's going to be the next big question, is whether they overrule the multi-member commissions. Um, and the last one I want to just throw out here, the last slide, is we warned, well, how far are you really going to go with this Supreme Court? Um, what about this, um, the civil service? What about the heads of multi-member agencies that have their own authority? What, what is a civil service? What power does an FBI wield if not the executive power? Um, does that mean that the president can fire all of them as well? To which the Supreme Court said, uh, none of these agencies is before us, and we do not comment on the constitutionality of any removal restrictions that applies to their officers. Um, I suspect that is not giving a lot of people comfort um, of where the Supreme Court is taking this. And that is Collins um, in 10 minutes. There we go. All right. Excellent stuff. All right, so we're going to be operating the same Q&A structure that has been at every panel thus far. So, I mean, I think we all remember that. I am going to exercise the moderator's privilege with an opening question, um, and it, I'm going to uh, start where Aaron left right off, and, and he, he can be the first person to answer, but it's very possible our other panelists will want to weigh in as well. And that is uh, Jeepers Creepers, uh, the Supreme Court in Collins v. Yellen and in other cases over the last decade, sure, rhetorically, is casting a great deal of doubt on the reasoning behind Humphrey's executor, which, as Aaron said, is the sine qua non, is the basis of, of all these uh, independent agencies, SEC, FTC, FERC, CFTC. So my question is, um, I know it's a fool's errand to prognosticate the Supreme Court, but nevertheless, 
Do you think it's possible Humphrey's executor is in play? They could nix it? Yeah, I, I think it's very much possible that the Supreme Court could nix Humphrey's executor. Um, there's the I mean, the stare decisis there, which has not been true for these others. Um, but if you read Salah Law, they have a footnote where they describe the holding in Humphrey's executor. And I'm not sure it even applies to today's FTC. Um, they said this, this agency was an aid to Congress. Um, it does not, it did not wield rulemaking authority. Well, the FTC wields rulemaking authority um, right now. So we'll see how that plays out. But um, my guess for what it is worth is um, before the Chief Justice leaves the court, uh, Humphrey's executor will be no more. Aaron, <clears throat> why do you think Scalia's Morrison sent has not been cited? I don't think it was cited in Seal of Law, and I don't think it was cited in Yellen either. It just seems like this canonical statement against Humphreys, and they just haven't even cited it. So uh, th that's an interesting question, and I suspect it's because um, the people who have been, been writing, um, these are folks that, so there's a generation of, of younger conservative um, who grew up you know, reading the Scalia dissent in Morrison, um, and you see that in Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, where they say this is like the greatest dissent that's ever been written, and, and so on. Um, the folks that are writing these cases at the Supreme Court are Roberts and now Justice Alito writes Collins. And I think they see themselves more as contemporaries with Scalia rather than the generation that Scalia influenced. Um, so I don't think that it has the same um, punch with them. It's not like, oh, wow, that was the thing I read in law school that made me get interested in separation of powers. I, I'm pretty sure they're thinking like, no, we were thinking that stuff you know, before at the same time or, or before he was ever thinking about it. So I just think that's, that's why, but, but I don't know for sure. It could just be the, the age of the people writing the opinions. Derek, John, did you have anything further to say about the possibility? I want to ask, I want to ask a different question. How did you come up with your, your argument? I know Chris well, I know you well. How did you come up with your argument? It's, it's a very creative argument. You know, what was your thought process? That's actually useful to, as an amicus to sort of just, how did you do it? You had a free reign. You had no client. You were your client. It is unusual. I've never had a case where I didn't have a client. Um, and usually um, clients are, they're very useful um, <laughs> because uh, they, because sometimes a client, you don't always want to win a certain, a certain way, a certain argument is not always an argument worth winning on. Um, so it's constraints in what you can do. Here we didn't have such constraints. We really just tried to find the best possible arguments that we could offer to them that were different that they hadn't seen before. Um, so we just kind of read it. Uh, you know, I thought that um, the conservatorship argument was, was fairly clever um, to say that, well, conservatorship is, is something that private people have been doing for centuries. Um, you know, see Britney Spears. Um, <laughs> so how can that possibly be executive power if that's something that ordinary people have been doing outside of the federal government forever. Um, and the court says, yeah, we're not going to decide that bigger question because this is not a typical conservatorship, which, which is fair. Um, but that was part of how that worked is we're just like, let's just kind of be creative and think first principles. So we went back and we read <laughs> everything under the sun um, that you could, you know, necessity is the mother of invention a little bit. Um, so we try to come up with things that just struck us as different and new. Um, and none of them won, so I guess we can say we weren't great at it. Um, no. But but that was that was the basis of the argument. At this point, though, this court had to reject every single one of these arguments. That's why I say my, this case is probably Myers or even beforehand, 
because they actually went through and made holdings about all of these points. Um, public right versus private right doesn't seem to matter. Um, small amount or large amount doesn't seem to matter. Um, the president can fire for insubordination. It doesn't matter. And there's a holding of the court for each of those propositions. Stuff. With that, we will uh, turn it to audience questions. So please, I see a gentleman raising his hand over there. Uh, Nived, would you please, the gentleman in the fourth row? And uh, please remember to, or I think we remember your name, but just again, uh, affiliation and name. <laughs> we appreciate that. Hi, I'm a Pats fan of retired military. And I must admit, I'm a little upset that uh, Ms. Nelson, uh, Professor Nelson, uh, poo-pooed the American, uh, was it the Memorial Society? Because my alma mater's board of directors are being fired. I mean, uh, board, um, the visiting board of directors, board of visitors, I get it right eventually, from my alma mater in college are being fired by good old Biden because allegedly, according to the spokesman, they don't agree with his philosophies. And I'm talking about the um, academy, West Point, and the, the three academies or four academies, whatever, they're all, the board of directors are being fired. They're supposedly on a three-year term. And I'm, I'm glad to see several of them are saying, telling Biden to screw himself and are um, not leaving. So I wondered, what do, what do you envision the, the outcome of, uh, because you also did it to the um, memorial group, I think that's there's a bunch bunch of executive um, uh, board of directors, a board of visitors type things, advisory. They don't do anything but I guess advise. And he decided he doesn't like them because because Trump had appointed them to three year terms, and so now he's firing them. And I'm wondering, there and there, several of them are. Uh, um, like Conley refusing to leave, and uh, guys like General McMaster, for God's sakes. And I'm wondering, what do you think the likelihood that they'll be able to stay for their three years? So I confess I have not read the specific statute at issue there. So I'd like to know first what what if there is any tenure provision. There's a term of term of years, but that's not itself a tenure provision protection. Um, if I mean after Collins. Um, the court says that unless Congress expressly creates a tenure protection, the court isn't going to read one in. Um, so you, you can blame me for that one too. Um, so I suspect that the answer is um, if there's not something express, um, then they're probably not going to win. If there is something express, then the question is going to be, are they exercising executive power? Um, and that would be a, a, you know, a statute specific inquiry. Um, but if it ever gets to the Supreme Court, I think they would be hard pressed to win because the Supreme Court, I think, has pretty strongly taken the view that the president can fire those within the executive branch. So if they're within the executive branch, um, I, I think they're, it's an uphill climb. Excellent. The, uh, I will just add very brief two cents. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but these cases have been very rarely litigated over the last 80 odd years, these removal protection cases. And there's been such flux at the Supreme Court. And now we've got Biden sort of leveraging it to the hilt where we might get more controversies that actually elucidate the law. So I mean, it's, it's potentially something in the future. Um, another audience question, uh, I believe, uh, uh, Adam, I think you were next. Uh, Hi, yes, Adam. 
Adam. Uh, <laughs> Scalia Law. Um, so this question is for Aaron. Um, and it's, it's so um, there's a, there, there was also another case this past term, Arthrex, that involved the Appointments Clause issue. And it does seem the Supreme Court seems to be very interested in this. I mean, this isn't the first Appointment Clause issue. It goes back to Lucia, the SEC. So they're they're very interested both in kind of the appointments of the appointment of, of people in the administrative state and the removal in the administrative state and um, and they've been developing a lot of case law on this um, which at least at a formal level looks like they're imposing restrictions on the administrative state both kind of in removal and in appointments level like you know in the appointments context they're like yes this violates the appointments clause and things of the sort and same with Lucia. But at the same time, Leviathan continues to grow and do all the things that it's doing. So this really, it's starting to strike me. I got very excited about Lucia and Arthrex and other cases, but it's really, it sounds a lot like just kind of like moving the deck chairs on the Titanic while the administrative state is just moving along, right? And, and sinking our, our, our state. Um, so do you have any, I mean, what's the, we're, we're, I mean, I, I could not see the U.S. Supreme Court saying, you know, yeah, the, the, you know, X, Humphrey's executor is out and therefore these, all these independent agencies fall. <laughs> so where do you see the end game in this? I mean, if we're interested in limited government and rolling back the administrative state, is it really makes sense to be putting all, you know, all this effort on appointments clause and removal issues? Yeah, so there's multiple issues coming up at multiple fronts um, at the Supreme Court. Um, and this one by itself isn't, ne isn't necessarily anti-regulatory or pro-regulatory either way. It can be anti-regulatory in an administration that wants to use regulatory power less because they can control the, the independent agent. By the way, by say Humphrey's executor falls, that doesn't mean like the FCC will cease to exist. Um, there will still be an FCC um, it would just be that the president has control over over what it does. Um, so it wouldn't be like, you know, let's close the door on the FTC. Like, it just means that the president could fire the head of the FTC, so they're more likely to follow presidential priorities. Um, so for, you know, deregulatory presidents, they would do less. Um, for pro-regulatory, they would do more. That's one part of the thing. In that sense, I can see you're saying, like, well, how does that work? There's other things happening right now, too. Um, just not this case. So you get the challenges to Chevron deference, um, which the Supreme Court is chipping away at. It's notable that there isn't a, uh, no one's giving a talk on Chevron right now because the Supreme Court isn't citing Chevron um, right now. So you can kind of reverse engineer, um, say if you are litigating and your argument is going to depend on Chevron, you're probably not gonna have a hospitable court waiting for you at the end of the day. That is restricting the power of, of what agencies can do. Um, Likewise, we just saw, um, you know, several weeks ago on the nationwide eviction moratoria, um, that was a substantive constraint on what agencies can do. The court says that unless Congress expressly gives a really big power, uh, we're not going to read it, we're not gonna infer it. That's a Chevron-ish issue, that's a non-delegation-ish type issue. That's a substantive thing uh, that will, you know, in theory constrain regulatory power. Um, but this line of separation of powers cases doesn't fit within that. I think it's 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 just a different type of issue. And the courts, I really think, um, you know, I've, I've never asked the chief justice this or whatever, but I think if you ask him, like, why are you doing this? I think you say, because it's we think it's right. 
Um, we think that this, is, this isn't strategic in that sense of whatever. We're doing this because we think that this is what Article Two of the Constitution means. And it's a pretty fundamental question. Um, and the president has to, ha there has to be electoral accountability for, for what agencies do. Um, so that's my sense going on. So I think you're talking about other lines of, of cases coming up. But this particular one, it's neither pro or anti-regulatory. It's just a question of accountability. And sometimes, you know, presidents will say, actually, we want to be really pro-aggressive. Like, again, the President Biden just fired the head of the SSA. Um, you know, I suspect that they're going to have different priorities than the Trump administration would have had on that kind of question. And I would uh, much prefer, uh, Aaron has monopolized the yeah. question so far. So it's if we've got one Aaron. for Derek or Aaron's Josh. Aaron's doing a great job. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, indeed he is, indeed he is. He's our uh, amicus. You, <laughs> My question's for Derek. Um, I think if we were in any other uh, institution in DC, he'd be getting all the questions rather than Aaron. <laughs> arguably the most controversial case uh, of the term. Um, what uh, impact do you think uh, Brnovich is going to have on the litigation over so-called Jim Crow 2.0? Presumably not the Justice Department's case against Georgia, because that's based on intentional discrimination on purpose, because they could see the, what was going to come in Brnovich, but uh, other you know, short-term uh, Section 2 litigation. Yeah, it's great. It's, um, so there, there's obviously litigation happening right now in Iowa, in Texas, uh, Florida, um, other litigation in Georgia. There are five or six or seven lawsuits in each of these states. I mean, it is everywhere. And sometimes it's challenging Section 2. Sometimes it's using something we call Anderson verdict balancing, which is kind of an ad hoc balancing test to examine uh, the scope of, of uh, election uh, rules and the impact they have on voters. Um, so the sense is, right, the mood from the Supreme Court here, can I use an administrative law? The mood from the Supreme Court here is, is really, you know, skepticism of, of these kinds of challenges coming up. And I think pointing out the usual burdens of voting to say that many of these rules, you know, Harris County, Texas no longer has 24-hour voting, which happened once in the history of the state of Texas, you know. Uh, Georgia is no longer going to mail every person in this state an absentee ballot application, which has happened once in the history of the state of Georgia, right? So there are these provisions that are being challenged that are novel pandemic-related measures that are being trimmed back. And when you look at those in isolation, the court invites you to look at them, not in isolation, but in terms of the context of how the other opportunities are available. You know, I think many of these are going to face an uphill battle in terms of, of, of winning. Um, now, Again, we mentioned Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is sort of specific to Brnovich, but this language, I, I anticipated having a pretty significant and outsized impact in other, other litigation, the Anderson verdict framework and other kinds of challenges to election laws, because this, this language from the court actually draws from Crawford, a voter identification case, which is an Anderson verdict case. Talk about it in the, in the in the election law industry, and, and it really is sort of bringing together and merging some of these standards to say, regardless of the fear under the Voting Rights Act, undoubtedly the burden is not just on voters as a whole, but on racial minorities or particularly racial particular racial groups that that might be disproportionately affected by a law. But to the extent that we're looking at these burdens that are being placed around the country. Uh, the courts, I think, are invited to say that these are pretty novel or nominal restrictions. And in most cases, you know, and, and I might, you know, in the back of my head, I think of one or two that might be more successful. Most cases, these, these laws are going to stand. Now, that's not to say that a district court somewhere isn't going to find or enjoin some of these things. It'll have to go up on appeal, and we'll see what happens after that. Um, but my anticipation is most of these laws are, are, are pretty marginal in their impact and will likely survive judicial scrutiny. 
Take another Just, um, I'm, I'm going to exercise being your boss prerogative. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Trump's moderated prerogative. Uh, uh, just for because most of our audience is is not lawyers, let alone election lawyers. Could you just explain what Anderson verdict sure. balancing is? Yeah. So in the 1960s, the court determined that we should start reviewing um, neutral election laws in terms of the effect that they have on the voter, voters, and thinking about the state's interest placed up against the burden that it places on voters. The notion is that there's this right to associate. Voters are voting on the ballot with, for a candidate, and that's this associational freedom at stake. And the court in the 60s and 70s to, begins to develop a series of cases to think about this as a balancing test. Um, so the 19, you know, the, the, the cases we use are Anderson versus Celebrezzi involving John Anderson's campaign in Ohio, where he was kept off the ballot uh, as, a, as a ballot restriction that was too onerous, and Burdick versus Takushi, a, a, a law in Hawaii that prohibited write-in candidates from having their votes counted on the ballot. And the court has largely said, you know, we look at this, if it's a, a relatively light burden, then the state's usual regulatory interest is going to be sufficient to allow the law to survive. Whereas if it's a substantial or significant burden, the state has to have a much weightier justification in order for the law to apply. Um, you know, again, uh, Judge Chad Riedler on the Sixth Circuit has written a lot of, I think, really important separate opinions in the last year critiquing this, uh, this kind of framework to say it's a really... It's a really difficult sort of ad hoc thing for judges to do, right? How heavy is the burden? How significant is the state's interest? Um, but, you know, that was at issue in Crawford where the Supreme Court approved a voter identification law. Um, and now that the courts are being invited to look not just at one law, but look at it in the system of laws and the available opportunities you have, I think it really is making it more difficult for plaintiffs to win these kinds of challenges. But time will tell. Excellent. Another uh, uh, audience question right back there. Derek, staying with you for a moment. So the Supreme Court and the circuit courts have shown that they really want to sidestep all this election litigation. However, the state Supreme Courts are not, several of them are not shy in interjecting themselves into the role of the legislature. I'm thinking of Pennsylvania in particular. Where do you think that's going to go in the coming years? Go in a lot of different directions. Uh, I'll offer a couple of thoughts. So one is, you know, state courts often have much looser standing grounds, the opportunity for plaintiffs to sue in state court in the first place, including, um, you know, basically generalized standing. If you're a voter, you can challenge something. Um, so that's a reason why state courts have become an attractive forum. Uh, another is a, a little bit of forum shopping. So I, I can come from Iowa. Um, the Eighth Circuit is uh, a relatively conservative circuit, if you will, compared to others. So there's been lots of movement to try to move election law cases into the state court system over the federal court system. Um, and undoubtedly, the state courts each or the state constitutions have their own provisions that often include some kind of affirmative right to vote or something that's construed as an affirmative right to vote. And for many states, they will lockstep. They will sort of say, well, whatever burdens are appropriate in the federal courts for federal constitutional rights and the federal right to vote, we're going to say it's the same sort of interest on the state side. But, you know, a, a diverse array of, of perspectives from uh, William Brennan to Jeff Sutton have said we should really be reinvigorating state constitutions as standing on their own two feet. And we should be interpreting state constitutions in a particular way about how to empower sort of voting rights for litigants in these cases. Um, all that is up against sort of the background, which you allude to in Pennsylvania, about especially when it comes to federal elections. It is incumbent on the legislature of the state to dictate the rules for elections, the times, places, and manner of holding elections, subject to oversight by Congress. 
And um, you know, it hasn't gotten a lot of traction in the courts since Bush versus Gore, but there's been a little bit of movement to say legislature means legislature. And if the state Supreme Court is developing a new rule, and we have to spend some time about when it's construing an existing rule versus developing a new rule, when it develops a new rule to usurp the legislative rule. Um, so that's an issue lingering out there. The Supreme Court had an opportunity to take that case. Uh, as it often does, it determines that it's moot. It waits a long time. <laughs> the case moots itself, and it doesn't weigh in on the issue that arose in Pennsylvania in particular. Um, but it would not surprise me to see a lot of these cases moving into state courts. Um, and maybe that's what we expect. Partisan gerrymandering claims are basically foreclosed in the federal courts. They're now moving to the state courts. And that's what Pennsylvania did. Uh, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found that the state map was an unconstitutional gerrymander. Um, so there are I think going to be increasing opportunities for state litigation, for robust state constitutional law, and to be thinking about these. And, and, and the vision is either this is the best of federalism, it's 50 states sort of approaching things in 50 different ways, uh, and laboratories of democracy, all that. Or, you know, we think that there are some certain federal floors for conservatives thinking about the legislature has a role defined by the Constitution, for progressives to say the Voting Rights Act and other federal laws should have a more important overlay on what the states are doing. Um, and we'll see if those come to a head if Congress chooses to enact more legislation in the future. Excellent. Um, this gentleman, you, you've been raising your hand. You've been so patient. So, Devin, could we please? And please remember to state your name and affiliation. David Sobelson, Press Associates International. Um, if uh, all Section 2 Voting Rights Act, Act challenges will lead to an examination of the overall political access in the state, and if overall political access in almost every state is somewhat broader today than it was in 1982, then I have to agree with you that it's very unlikely any Section 2 challenge will ever survive again at the Supreme Court, at least in this Supreme Court. I have two questions, though, about Arizona. Um, and one is, does the Arizona statute permit uh, caretakers or family members to then turn the ballot over to some more general entity to deliver the actual ballot? And if not, how do you anticipate that Native Americans who have no car, who live on reservations that are hundreds of miles away from the nearing polling place, are going to actually exercise their right to vote in the future? Yeah, so um, in terms of the, the boots on the ground facts, especially for tribal reservations in Arizona, because I think that was one of the, 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 the most significant sticking points and one of the reasons uh, I believe is the Navajo Nation joined as plaintiffs in the DNC lawsuit at the trial court level. Um, you know, Arizona has long had a ban on third parties delivering ballots that were un incomplete, uncompleted two individuals. It could only come through a postal worker or something like that. And so one thing that the lower court, again, the trial court took on a lot of evidence and found that, listen, if this prohibition has already been in place for an extended period of time, if it's already prohibited and you give, have finding a third party to collect the ballot and get it to you, you're getting the ballot somehow on the reservation. And therefore, whatever burden there is in sending it back is relatively marginal. Once we look at the existing statutory landscape. Now, maybe the thought is, maybe I should have gone bigger. Maybe I should have challenged the third-party delivery as well as the third-party collection. Um, but I think we, when we think about caretakers or family members or whoever it might be, um, undoubtedly, the tribal reservations are the places where, where facts on the ground, are, where the records are being developed to try to challenge statutes like this. Um, in this case, the district court held a 10-day trial and took a lot of evidence 
found the evidence anecdotal at best and that there wasn't enough sort of statistical evidence to demonstrate it. To the original premise you raised, it, it's true to think about voting opportunities today and compared to 1982. It's worth emphasizing that's one factor, right? There's the court gives five guideposts. If we can say, well, it's not really that much of a burden compared to 1982, but it dramatically affects black voters and white voters differently, right? The margin is significant in how it affects these voters. That would be enough to sort of weigh as a different factor on the other side. And so to the extent that um, Native American plaintiffs in the future are able to identify with a, with a better record developed below, you know, they're going to have more opportunities to, to succeed on challenges like that in the future. Uh, last, well, we've got a minute 55. Devin, do you think you can make it a super quick question? Please, we'll try to. I wanted to uh, ask about the kind of next domino that I see concerning the presidential control. Um, as the court has allowed more presidential control over administrative law judges and things like that, do you see that as potentially raising substantial due process problems that might force such judges to be controlled as federal magistrates as part of an Article Three court rather than part of the executive branch controlled by the president? So that's actually a really, really hard question. Um, so the question, here's the problem. Uh, within the executive branch, you have lots of folks that apply law to facts, adjudicators. So in the Social Security Administration, there's all sorts of administrative law judges. And the question is, well, they're all in the executive branch and they're exercising executive power. So does that mean the president can fire all of them or threaten to fire them? Well, how is that going to affect how they, their, impar their partiality, right? Are they going to be fair to the folks in front of them if they're afraid that their decision is going to cause them to be fired? And I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out. Um, I mean, if you're even a Myers, um, Chief Justice Taft struggles with that particular um, problem. So I think we're going to see some litigation on that. For what it is worth, uh, Chris Walker and I are working on a solution to that problem, um, but we're not quite ready to, to, to share it with the world yet. So um, wait and see, um, but, but we're thinking about it. Perfect response. Ten seconds left. The, uh, um, I, with that, you know, like the Supreme Court, they ignored the uh, inseparability provision, so it's familiar. All right, nice. <laughs> and you, you fit that in before we're done. Um, well, with that, please join me in thanking our panelists. I thought that was great. The, uh, and, uh,